Hello, and welcome everyone to a special Ropes and Gray podcast celebrating Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month. My name is Adrienne Ortega. I'm a partner at Ropes and Gray in our healthcare practice group. This podcast series features some of our Latinx and Hispanic clients who have had remarkable careers while also making significant contributions to their communities and working to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion in their industries. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Jorge Lopez, the Executive Vice President and General Counsel for Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Prior to joining MSK in 2016, Jorge was a partner with Aiken Gump, where he was head of the healthcare practice. From 1991 to 1992, he served as a legal advisor to Bill Clinton's presidential campaign. And Jorge currently serves on the advisory board of the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law, Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Jorge, welcome to this Ropes and Gray podcast, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me, Adrian. Um, I've uh, very much enjoyed working with you and your colleagues at Ropes and Gray over my, my time at, at uh, MSK, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you today. Well, thank you. Why don't we dive right in? Um, let's begin with your background. Could you tell us about yourself uh, and your background? Yeah, ha- happy to. So I am um, I'm a Cuban immigrant. Um, I was born in Havana when I was three years old. Um, I left with my family uh, and uh, came to the U.S. Um, the precipitating event at the time was uh, there was a day, kind of an infamous day in Cuban history in 1961, when Castro uh, nationalized all private property. And so that that was probably the single biggest event that caused the uh, the Cuban diaspora, and my parents left, and we left uh, without anything. It was uh, like like many like many other Cubans at the time, we had to leave under the pretense that we were going on vacation, and so you couldn't bring anything with you. So we we left literally with the clothes on our backs, and we could fit in a suitcase. And we couldn't put any money in the suitcase or any other valuables because they search you at the airport. Um, and so we left and came to the U.S. Um, and uh, we lived in uh, Miami for a year. And then we moved to the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C., which is where uh, I grew up. I went to college in Washington at a, a small Catholic school called Catholic University after, after CU. Um, I um, I was admitted to Harvard Law School, and and that's where I, and that's where I went to law school. That's such an amazing story, Jorge. Uh, what you and your family uh, went through in this decision to come here after graduating Harvard. How did you embark on your legal career, and what were some of the pivotal moments in your career? Yeah, sure. Uh, four four events come to mind, and actually, let me let me kind of take you back to Harvard for a minute. Um, so. The first was my first semester of law school at Harvard. Um, I had a classic case of what I guess you would call today imposter syndrome. Um, everyone there seemed so smart and so confident and came from impressive Ivy League backgrounds. And compared to them, I didn't feel very smart or confident or come from such a background. So I kind of worked myself up into a frenzy and had probably the, the most stressful four months of my entire life. Um, But then exams came and I did fine and I got my confidence back and the rest of law school was relatively uneventful, but it was certainly a a rough rough few months. So the the second was uh, 
when I was deciding where to work after law school. So I was a summer associate at Hale and Door, another big Boston firm, now Wilmer Hale, of course. But my wife, who was from the Boston area, and I decided to go back to DC instead of staying in Boston. So I interviewed with firms as the third year, which is a relatively rare thing these days, but back then was pretty common. And I had a few offers and ultimately I settled on Aiken Gump, which, which was not a terribly big firm at the time, but it had a reputation and still does as a policy and lobbying powerhouse. And I had always been interested in politics and current events. Uh, you know, I thought about becoming a journalist at, 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 at one point. And coming from a recently arrived Cuban-American family, you paid a lot of attention to current events because for a while there, everyone thought we were going back to Cuba. So I went, I went to, I went to Aiken. Uh, so third, um, I got into healthcare in the most random way. Uh, when I accepted my Aiken offer, I didn't give a strong preference for what practice area I wanted to join. And that turned out to be a fateful uh, decision. So I remember I've told the story a million times. My first day of work, I show up, I go to the bathroom, I bump into this guy, we introduce ourselves. I'm the new kid in the block. He said, uh, I'm the head of the healthcare group uh, at Aiken, and you're going to come work for me. <laughs> so I became the third member of the healthcare group at Aiken. Um, I didn't know Aiken had a dedicated healthcare practice. I don't even think I knew that law firms offered that kind of thing. I hadn't had any previous exposure to healthcare as a legal specialty. There weren't any doctors in my family. I didn't take any healthcare courses in law school. So fast forward 20 years, and I was the head of a pretty large, uh, the pretty large healthcare practice group uh, at Aiken. And then lastly, when I'm thinking about uh, pivotal events. As you mentioned, um, I worked on Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign, and I signed up working for him early before really anyone knew who he was. And so I got to do some relatively high profile legal work. And I remember, for example, uh, doing some research on an aspect of the Jennifer Flowers controversy, if you recall what that was, uh, <laughs> what that was all about. So when he was elected, I had an opportunity to go into the administration uh, working for uh, a guy named Webb Hovell, who at the time I think was the number two person at DOJ. But that was the very same year I made partner at Aiken. So I had a really difficult decision uh, to make. Um, I think I made the right one. Um, I had a successful career as a partner at Aiken. And you might remember Webb Hubble was later incarcerated. <laughs> but it, it wasn't such an obvious uh, choice at the time. Um, there's so much to unpack and so many pivotal points in your career. Um, first, thank you for raising uh, imposter syndrome. And I think it's probably very heartening to many people who are listening to hear that you had those feelings and went on to have such an impressive career. Um, and I hear it all the time from students um, as well as others practicing in the legal community. Um, you mentioned a little bit about your career at Aiken, and you were at Aiken for a long time as one of the founding members of the healthcare practice. Is there anything you'd like to touch on uh, your time as an associate and partner or practice group head? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I had an incredibly rewarding 
32 years at Aiken, and that's a really long time to be at any one place. And I mentioned the decision to not to go into the Clinton administration as a hard decision. Uh, I think the hardest decision that I had was the decision to leave to leave Aiken and come to MSK. Uh, you know, I grew uh, tremendously as a lawyer there, and I made so many friends. You know, uh, many of whom are still uh, some of my best friends uh, to to this day. And after I became the practice group head. I learned a lot about managing people, which uh, turned out to be uh, really excellent preparation for my for my current job. Um, you know, you know, um, Adrian, I, I, I often get asked who, who mentored you at Aiken, who was influential in your professional development. And, and the truth is that I, I didn't really have a good mentor in the traditional sense, although I certainly got a lot of support. Uh, from the partners in the healthcare group and, and elsewhere in the firm. Um, I think I learned the most, and I would, and I would say I was, I was mentored by the people who I supervised, the people who I mentored. Um, they, they taught me the most about managing people and working together. We were able to provide excellent service to clients and develop a successful practice. And honestly, one, the, the one thing that I'm proudest of in my time at Aiken um, is everything that my, my mentees have accomplished, both at Aiken and also on other career paths. Um, so in, in no particular order, and this is, this is far from an exhaustive list, uh, let, let me just tell you what some of them are doing. Uh, uh, one is the GC of a healthcare company in the ESRD space. Another uh, was a GC of a biotech company is not, and is now the CEO of a healthcare company. Um, a, a third is one of the top lawyers at Vertex, uh, which is, as you know, one of the leading biotech companies in Boston. Um, another is a compliance officer at Dana-Farber. Um, one of my mentees is one of the top lawyers at LabCorp. Another is the healthcare, a healthcare partner at Aiken, and another is a healthcare partner at Manette. So I'm very proud of all of them. It's such an important point about mentoring and mentorships and also about networks, really, as you go through that list of um, all of your mentees um, uh, and the careers they've gone on to have. Um, shifting gears slightly, as we're all well aware, there are very few Latinos in the legal profession. For example, 5% of law firm associates and 2% of partners identify as Latinx or Hispanic. Can you tell us a little bit about how your identity has affected your career and what are some challenges you faced? And on the flip side, how have you been able to leverage your background for success? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I didn't mention this before, but um, when we came to the US, no one in my family knew English. Uh, my, my grandparents actually never, never learned it. And my parents learned it, but always spoke uh, heavily accented English. And if you met my mother, you would know in a nanosecond that she wasn't that she wasn't born in the U.S. So, so I learned English in school and in, 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 in kindergarten. Um, also, it, it may have been different if we had stayed in Miami, but in the Maryland suburbs of D.C., we lived in a completely Anglo community. And although I, I feel we were assimilated really well, we also felt a little bit like outsiders. And, and um, one way that I've experienced that in my 
um, in my in my life is is my name. So I, I'm a junior, um, and my father. So my father had the same name, but he always had people that he worked with call him George. And I always, and 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 honestly, for reasons I can't really explain, insisted that people call me Jorge. And 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 it's been actually kind of an annoyance to me my entire life because people mangle my name. They call me Jose, or a, a common one is Georgie. Um, and that's happened my entire life. Like to this day, it ha it happens. So it, it's it's something that's always reminded me of where I came from. And, and I do think I've been able to leverage that. Um, it has steeled me because it reminds me of the history of my family and all of the obstacles that we've been able to overcome, not, not by ourselves, but uh, you know, with the help of many people and through the grace of God. Uh, and so <laughs> that, that, is, that is obviously an indispensable part of, of who I am. It's so meaningful, the importance of our names, um, especially um, to, you know, persons who identify as being Latinx or Hispanic and the importance that our names carry. Um, why don't we transition to, as you were talking about earlier, um, your role at MSK? Um, what went into your decision to transition to go in-house after being at a law firm for so many years? Well, like I said, it was a very, a very hard decision. And I remember having a really emotional meeting with my good friend, Kim Cooper Smith, who's the chair of Aiken Gump to uh, tell her about it. it. It really came down to three things. Um, the first is um, wanting to do something in my life other than being a partner in a law firm. Um, Aiken was really the only serious job I ever had other than being a summer associate. Um, and it was important to me to just do something different before I ran out of runway. So that's the first. Second is um, I had represented MSK for many years while at Aiken, going back you know, going back to the early '90s, and I also represented the other uh, dedicated cancer centers like MD Anderson and Dana Farber. And I was completely drinking the Kool Aid on their mission and the importance of helping them fight the war against cancer. So it was it was really compelling to me to have the opportunity to be in the middle of that mission, working from the inside instead of the outside. And then lastly, you know, I'm, I'm sure it would have been fine, but I was worried about burning out if I had to work the rest of my career as a big law partner with all of the stresses and pressures that that entails. And as it turned out, I think I've traded those set of pressures for another set. And I certainly don't think that I'm working any less hard at MSK than I was at Aiken. But there are some things about being a law firm partner, like having to account for every minute of your day, you can relate to that, <laughs> and the ever-present need to keep revenues coming in. You know, those are things that I, I don't miss. And you've touched on some of them, but what do you value most about your current role? So many things, but I would highlight these three. Uh, the first is um, the opportunity to build something. So I'm actually only the second GC in the history of MSK. So I've been able to reshape the legal department fairly radically in my time here. And, and, and that, has been, that has been very fulfilling. 
So second, um, I work with an incredible team, both awesome legacy lawyers that I inherited and amazing lawyers and non-lawyer professionals that we've been lucky enough to, to recruit. Um, we built a team that I am just so proud of. And I think if I could be immodest for a minute is one of the best in-house legal teams in the hospital industry. So that's number two. And then number three, um, what I anticipated when I made my decision to come here has been born has been born out. It's been so rewarding to be working hand in hand with colleagues who are devoted to this historic mission of waging the war on cancer, uh, a battle that is that is as close to being won now as perhaps it has ever been. So I feel really fortunate uh, to be uh, in this position. Thinking about diversification in the legal profession and maybe starting internally with your own team at MSK, um, how have you gone about, um, you know, increasing diversity uh, internally on your team? We've done it in a number of ways. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say that um, as, as at many companies and institutions, um, the George Floyd murder was a real catalyst for us. And we certainly paid attention to diversity issues before then, but, but, but it took on um, a renewed focus uh, at, at, after that event. And uh, within our legal team, I felt very strongly that we needed to take a lead role within the institution uh, in promoting diversity more than we, what we had in the past. Uh, and we, we did that in a number of different ways. Um, one way that we did it that, um, that has been very, very fruitful for us is our involvement with the Diversity Labs Mansfield Rule Program. And I think you, you, you're probably familiar with that uh, because law firms have been very active with the Mansfield Rule. Essentially, it's, it's the legal equivalent of the Rooney Rule in football where you have to uh, take some very deliberate steps to ensure diversity uh, within your firm or, or, or institution. Um, and we've done that. And we had a process that started um, two years ago that is culminating now. And I don't think the official announcement has been made, but I believe we're gonna be Mansfield Rules certified uh, next month. And I think we're one of only a few hospitals that have that have that status, um, and that was a very good way to ensure diversity within our legal team, uh, and to make sure and, and to make sure that we were doing everything that we needed to do in that regard. It gave us some structure. It gave us some set goals to shoot for. You know, we've been able to fulfill all of the requirements, and it's been a uh, a terrific way to ensure that our entire team um, has has been engaged in, in in that process, and it is one that that has involved you know virtually our entire uh, legal team. So I'm very proud of that, and uh, feel that we've made enormous strides over the course of the last two years. That's terrific. And how about outside counsel? Um, how do you approach diversity in your selection of outside counsel? So, so we, know we have billing guidelines for our outside counsel. And um, in those guidelines, we, um, we require that firms and, and their staffing in providing services to MSK, that they um, 
pay attention to diversity and as much as possible provide us with diverse lawyers to, uh, to provide services to us. Uh, we also have um, sent to all of our law firms a survey asking for them to specify uh, what they do within their firms to, to, to promote diversity. And so we review those uh, survey results and we take, and take those results into account in making decisions as to, um, as to how to uh, uh, engage and, and retain uh, law firms. Um, you know, we don't have um, the biggest legal budget in the world, so we don't have the leverage that big companies have, for example, um, in uh, requiring that diverse lawyers staff our matters. Um, but we, we do think it's important and we prioritize it um, as we make our decisions about retaining, retaining counsel. You know, one, one, one thing that, um, that, that made an impression on us is that, you know, we sent out this survey to all of our law firms and, you know, there were a handful of firms that didn't even uh, bother to respond, right? So that, that, that makes a statement to us about the importance of diversity at that, at that, at that firm. And, and I can guarantee you that we'll be thinking about that when we make our decisions on retaining counsel. What do you think it will take to diversify the legal field, you know, be it big law, in-house, government, sectors, you know, across the legal field? Um, what do you think uh, uh, it takes um, to move the ball forward? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any, there's any one uh, solution. And, and it's not a solution that, and, and there's no solution out there that's gonna change things uh, overnight. I think what it's gonna take is for, especially for um, diverse uh, lawyers who have been you know, relatively successful um, to uh, proactively in small ways, try to make, make changes. And you know we can't we can't fix everything, but we can fix what we can within our respective uh, law firms, companies, and institutions. And um, you know I, I just described what we've tried to do at MSK that I think has made a real difference. Uh, we have a very diverse workforce here, um, and and you know some of that is a, a direct result of what we've been doing over the course of the last couple of years. There's also like like smaller ways that you can make a difference by by mentoring um, students. You know, I've, I've done some of that. Uh, some some students have come to me asking for advice, uh, not interns that we employ or, or people that we have any other relationships with, but just people that have reached out to me. And I'm happy to do what I can to to mentor them and to and to give them advice. And I think it, it really is that kind of thing, kind of an external focus and, and on a on a person-by-person -person basis, trying to do what we can within, within what we can control to make a difference. And, and, and we need the people who have been successful um, and who recognize the importance of this issue to take proactive steps to, to, to do what they can to, to make a difference. Well, thank you, Jorge, for joining us on this podcast episode as part of our celebration of Latinx Hispanic Heritage Month here at Ropes and & Gray. And thanks to you all for listening. 
please be on the lookout for future podcast episodes uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.